Welcome to the Street Smart Wisdom Podcast from Wisdom Feed. I'm Steve Stein. In this series, we talk to best-selling authors and thought leaders doing great work in the world of mindfulness, wellness, and creativity. Our mission is to bring ancient ideas down to street level and bring you takeaways that you can apply to everyday life. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterListen.com. At BetterListen, we have hundreds of audios, courses, and programs available to stream and download. As a listener to the Street Smart Wisdom podcast, you are eligible for a free audiobook download. Just visit BetterListen.com forward slash free today. Today's podcast, we host award-winning storyteller, performer, writer, and educator, Laura Sims. Laura has been a storyteller her whole life, and she shared some amazing stories from around the world. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Street Smart Conversations. My name is Steve Stein, and we're glad today to have Laura Sims with us. Uh, We've been working together on and off for years. And uh, Laura, who are you? Introduce yourself. (laughs) That's the question to begin with, huh? Yeah. Well, I guess for um, better listen, I'm a storyteller, and I have been a storyteller involved with engagement and mindfulness practice and the magic of language and myth and personal story for over 50 years. So that's talking about the outer, who I am? Well, I have no idea, but (laughs) that's the uh, mythic quest, isn't it? But uh, this is what I do in the world and I've done it since I was 20 years old, a sort of auspicious accident, or maybe a calling, maybe destiny, but Hmm. I am so great at what I do, actually. And (laughs) I know you take stories from around the world, but what do you do with those stories? Do you look for themes with them, or, uh, you know, what, you're a storyteller, but what does a storyteller do, or how do you do storytelling? Well, I actually um, combine traditional myth, fairy tale, and wisdom stories with personal narrative. So, um, you know, I I do many things in my life. The ground of it is the work with engaged reciprocal narrative. And I uh, love working with these highly symbolic, almost zany stories of journeys and revelations um, that kind of give us a sense of the inner and outer world being united, like a kind of waking dream. And I combine them with stories from my own life, things that happened in my childhood, and talking about street conversations, things that happen outside this window that you can't see onto Broadway and 12th Street. 
near Union Square in Manhattan or wherever I happen to be in the world because I love the intersection of the ordinary with the mythic. I was an early student of Joseph Campbell in my 20s. Actually, I took a workshop across the street here with him. And um, I sort of fell in love with the truth of these very ancient stories. So as a storyteller, my job is to kind of almost unearth what's inside the story. And I do that through reflecting not only on the image of the story and its essential meanings and resonance, but also what's happened in my own life and my experience. And I would say that the background of a lot of that is this 30-year practice of Tibetan Buddhist meditation that I've also been engaged with, which happened because I was one day reading about Inuit, or we usually think of them as Eskimo, but Inuit shamans and shamanesses who were so sensitive to their community, not only to the everyday life of people, but to the interconnection with the spirit world and with the natural world. And I thought, how am I going to gain this kind of sensitivity? So what came to me, and actually Joe Campbell helped me by telling me not to do it, was that I <laughs> began to study meditation with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher way back in the uh, mid 70s. So that was one of the, that's one thing I do as a storyteller and that's really grown into my working with storytelling and healing, working with communities and groups to help people to listen to each other and understand the kind of myth that they're living. And, um, and I work a lot with individuals who are trying to uncover their personal story. So a lot of times I work by um, using the structure of a myth or a fairy tale to uncover the kind of real story that somebody's trying to tell, which is so it's not obstructed by their kind of personal opinion. Do you, do you find that there are, I mean, themes in stories? So, like, you know, because one of the missions that we're trying to do here, you know, so Better Listen is our audio label we've been doing for years, and now we have a new thing called Wisdom Feed. And Wisdom Feed, this is the name of this podcast series, is Street Smart Conversations. So we're trying to take this wisdom, uh, timeless teachings, and kind of boil it down to street level. So I'm curious ab about myth and how mythology kind of mirrors real life, you know, which gets me to why. Why is it relevant, you know, storytelling? I'm, I'm going to answer your first question because it's such an interesting question. And um, which I, now I think I forgot your first question. Suddenly thinking about the uh, second. But the myth, you know, the thing, comparison. The, well, there are, there are always themes. There's this theme of the journey. There's the theme, which is often the motivation of the journey, of something missing, and then the story is about retrieving that. So there could be, um, within that, the theme of the unconscious kindness that tempered through um, facing obstacles then grows into a great leadership or um, the sort of personal and 
universal access of wisdom. So I, I would say that there are themes and there are images and there are qualities of journeys in these stories. Um, myths are not always journeys. They're, they're more like um, revelations of the arising out of nothing or out of timelessness into form, into um, how that form begins to break into pieces. And it's a kind of reflection of our psyches and how we become um, people with thinking and observation. So does that have to do with like archetypes or archetypal parts of our psyche or? Yeah, it's like, it's as if there's some essence or accessible territory that is where everything exists in union and as we become human beings it's almost like there's um some unique arising of form from that pool of wisdom and it is unique and every person like a a fingerprint that's somewhat discernible you know it reminds me of when i was younger i don't even know why or how but uh i guess it was carl jung did a book man and his symbols Yes. I think it was like a, a coffee table book, but they yeah. had pictures of mandalas and spirals and shells and nature things. And I would look at it and I would just get the sense that I was looking into not a fractal, but like almost the molecular, the makeup of, uh, you know, somehow archetypally, not to use the word loosely, but I would look at those symbols and I would like, wow, there's there's something um, timeless about it. The, like it's a, almost viscerally recognizable. The more we become in touch with ourselves, the more the quality or the patterns are more familiar to us. What's confusing, I think, to us, I was thinking about this lately, is that we're so addicted to trying to understand everything that sometimes we lose the capacity to actually experience the meaning and the fullness of something, which is both the understanding and the direct experience. I would say that that's what myth brings us into direct contact with. And the fairy tales, which I really love, I love telling fairy tales to adults because they'll think like, oh yeah, fairy tale. And then they'll find themselves irresistibly just sort of caught up in this story, commenting on it. And if I stop in the middle and ask people what it reminds them of in their lives or if they have an image they like, suddenly these amazing associations and memories from our street level everyday life come up to meet these images as if it was they were meeting each other. And it's at that place of sort of conjunction, confluence, or collusion even, that I'm really excited. Because then I think that people are less prone to um, suffer into this kind of isolated need to define everything or um, have an opinion-only relationship in their life. But suddenly there's some mysterious connection like the, you know, all this research being done on trees that I love to read about, how 
the roots of the trees have energy and they communicate uh, through this kind of life force listening in the roots of the trees. I, I just love this with each other so they can protect each other, warn each other, give each other nutrients. I, I think that's the place that we've somewhat lost that all of us long for. And when you listen to a story, that place starts to vibrate and like, we get in touch with it. I remember once I was in um, a private school with second graders and <laughs> there were like 300 second graders and it's like some kind of small elfin population and it's completely chaotic and the teachers are like this is nice there's an entertainment coming and i told oh the teacher said to me they have a very a short attention span which always interests me so therefore i changed from telling three stories to telling a 55 minute story <laughs> because i think no one really has a short attention span except teacher perhaps and an assumption so i told this long fairy tale. It took place in three worlds and there were bullies who were overcome and there were, you know, monsters rising up and I put in ordinary people and um, all kinds of things. And it was over. And here were the kids seated in front of me and the teachers too. They had put down the papers they were marking and sort of lost themselves, looking much more deranged than the children who were like listening with this full, you know, intelligent alertness because they're closer to their dreams and imagination. Teachers looked utterly undone, but they were attentive. And I said, okay, so um, does anybody have an image or something from the story that you really liked? And this girl sitting almost on my foot just burst out and she said, I forgot the story. And I said, well, that was fast. And she said, I got married. <laughs> what? I got married. And, <laughs> and then the bell rang, this kind of Pavlovian moment in which herds of small beings had to leave. And they were leaving. And there was an elevator. We were in a basement. And I got in the elevator, and a teacher was bringing in another boy. And this boy... <laughs> said to me, you're the one who just told the story. And I said, yeah. And he said, the netherworld needs you. <laughs> and I thought these kids had spoken to me from this kind of direct place for the little girl. And this is my assumption. I think that she was living in that story moment by moment and all the disparate parts of herself that she was imagining while I was speaking came together. And at the end, when there was a wedding, when the lost um, female was retrieved, which is so much of what these stories are about, the lack of feminine principle and the necessity for a part of ourselves to retrieve that so we can be whole, so we can live full lives with compassion and humor and joy and fertility, um, that that she got married, that there she was, that she spoke to me from the middle of her experience. And this boy, whatever that meant to him, it just was so clear to him that the netherworld needed me, that that place below that was in the story was dry and um, was 
filled with danger and, and a creature that had drunk all the water out of tremendous greed and violence, something we can all relate to in our lives now, that, that that's right, the netherworld needed somebody to tell them stories, to kill that dragon and release all the moisture and kindness that is essential back into the world. I, I Wow, that's amazing. I, I kind of doubt it, but do you watch any current TV shows at all? Like what? Stranger Things? No, no. Stranger Things has this, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 I think it's worth watching. My wife and I, we love it. But they have the upside down. You know, it's kind of like the old Twilight Zone where all of a sudden you walk into the wall and like, where'd you go, Junior? You know, and, and uh -huh. there's a whole other reality on the other side of the wall. Yes. They call it the upside down. And it's very much the shadow side and, mm. uh, and having to be, having to be uh, you know, some heroic way to get out of the upside down because people are trying to kill you. Once in a while, someone gets killed. But it's very creative and it's almost, it's tongue in cheek, but it's real enough that it's really, I never thought of it, that it's really kind of introducing modern masses because it's one of the most popular shows. Oh, well, I'll, I'll look it up. But it's I called The Upside Down, kind of like the netherworld that, that, you, that you mentioned. <laughs> Well, you know, another time I was, um, I was invited to tell stories in um, the park behind the New York Public Library for adults in the afternoon. And some guy came bounding out from the parks department to welcome me. And I was looking for a stage and a microphone and all the things that a storyteller would need. And none of it was there. And I said, well, um, am I in the wrong place? <laughs> and he said, no, no, you just tell stories to anybody who comes here. So then there was a seated on a fountain ledge were homeless people. So he said, here's an audience. <laughs> That's a captive so audience. Okay. And so I began telling, I was going to tell one story, but I took a look at everybody and I thought, this Egyptian, ancient Egyptian tale called The Black Prince about a young man who was considered really ugly and stupid and sort of rejected, uh, makes a journey to uh, a magician who he's told can change his soul, make him really like a machismo fellow so he could run for president. And um, so he, uh, <laughs> he makes the journey Anyway, I told the story, and in the end, he does become a great warrior. And so the pharaoh is rewarding him and offers, he has fallen in love with the pharaoh's daughter is the problem, and he realizes that- That's always trouble. He's not gonna have anything to do with him. So at the end, of course, the pharaoh offers his daughter, and the daughter says, oh. well, father, I, you know, this is obviously a great warrior who saved our country, and, but I actually, fell in love when I was younger with a boy that you never would have approved of. He played the flute and he always sat in the garden and he didn't seem to care about me at all. But I, if you want me to, I will marry this man, but I really love another. And the black prince who had been the boy and gave up his soul, basically, sold himself, transformed himself um, to be a warrior, said to her, well, I once 
was in love just like you and I would never make you marry me. So the story ends with him walking off into the desert. And these, these, uh, everyone um, sort of street ordinary had sort of left, who had been listening. And in fact, the, I never saw a parks department person again. It was just this sort of little group of homeless people and me in the park. And this guy looks at me and he said, are you gonna be here tomorrow? And I said, no, no, they just had me here today. And he said, man, that's like real life. <laughs> and I thought, it's not just the second graders, it's everybody. You know, every it, story, the power of story just transcends, uh, you know, there's a certain meditative part to it because if you follow a story, you have to be engaged. And I think that's kind of like mindfulness, you know, being engaged and a story just brings you in. And, um, you know, when I think about it, part of the, the reason for doing this whole wisdom feed thing is, uh, well, I think we're both from Brooklyn. We both have that uh, 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 history. And, so like people from the street that they got out or they never got out, there's a certain wisdom. I call it street smart wisdom. And it's innate because you have to be in real time. You have to, you know, the bus comes and or the, you get splashed. There's so many. It's not like you're living. It's not better or worse than living in a country or living anywhere. It's just slightly different. But I think the power of story has the potential to uh, connect with with everyone. A two year well, you know, old. The storytellers, a real storyteller, I think, distinguished from someone who is interested in just the moral of the story or giving their interpretation of the story, is involved, as you said, in this kind of engagement. When I teach, what is always striking me is that people think they're in contact with the audience by seeing them, but it's an energetic thing in which you are listening. It's like sensitized to the atmosphere of what's occurring. Because what's really occurring, the more you are present, and that is where my practice of meditation comes in, the more present and aware you are of not only the story and how it works, but your relationship to the audience, the more you realize that every single person is actually becoming and responding by making this story alive visually, emotionally, um, through memory and, and also accessing then this kind of pool of wisdom that's self-existing in everyone. It's you become the story, you make the story, and every single person is hearing, not the story I'm telling, but the story that they are experiencing. And the thread of wisdom that's sort of like a kind of shining, um, metallic, vibrant thread that runs through the story is what takes us on a journey. So we are all on the same journey, having a completely unique experience based on who we are. And because we have to keep following this story while it's being told, because we want to know what's going to happen next, our little mind is going, ooh, I wonder what happens next, I wonder what happens next. Then you make it happen, actually, in the space between. This, 
kind of sense. You don't have time to interpret or to dissociate. Maybe later you do. Somebody will say, I got it, this is what it means. And I always say, well, thank you. <laughs> because I know it already happened. What happened was the meaning. What happened was the mind opening. What happened was all of us with our unique diversity listening at the same time to a seemingly similar journey, but no one makes the same journey. There can be nothing more humbling and radiant than this, more peacemaking actually, than this event that takes place between people. Wow, it's... Yeah, it I, means I like the storyteller it. has to be skilled because some people tell a story in order to promote their point of view. I mean, that's how genocides and fascism are promoted by a single story being told, um, projected onto a group rather than the engagement occurring. So I always think the antidote is engagement and worthwhile our learning all about it so that we don't prove a point but we become irresistibly potent irresistibly who potent oh mm, i like that term i can remember being at fordham university for business students and the whole thing was about narrative and i'm not a fan of branding particularly but as, I mean, I like branding, but I don't think it's a story. I think it's um, a description. It's a sales point. It's a soundbite sales you point. You know, Barb, what I'm, what, what I'm learning now, uh, and part of this in my story is uh, for the last bunch of years, I've been kind of uh, in the closet, so to speak. You know, I, I'm now I'm, I'm leaving. I'm only at my day job three days a week after 17 years. But my LinkedIn... I, didn't ha I never had it updated until like six or eight months ago. Of course, I had a business life and it was separate from, uh, it was separate from my personal brand and me being authentic. So I'm enjoying doing this. This is like the fourth or fifth or sixth one we've done. And, um, and I'm, you know, they, it's a cliche or whatever the term is. It's a personal brand. And, uh, and it has to do with authenticity. And, uh, but I think somehow it ties into uh, individuality. And if, some, if you let someone project their story onto everything, it's easy to lose I don't know if that really ties in with what you were saying. Projecting. Well, I think it's the, same. it's the same thing. I think everything has to be seen for what it is. Um, Story is story, and storytelling has become a buzzword for things that seem to be more personal or that have some narrative connectivity. Or there's books that say story. A story has a beginning, middle, and end of a conflict. Well, actually, not all great stories have conflicts. Wow. But, um, but so if we can see everything for itself and its own nourishment. You know, you know talk about, I'm sorry. No, you're just excited. <laughs> but, um, you know, a Brooklyn term, you know, comes in. Like, I used to make up stories if I was late or if my homework, my dog read, you know, ate my paper. Or I don't even have a dog, but my dog, you know, ate my paper. But whatever. So it's a personal 
narrative and whether you make up a story, there's always a storyline. And I think that there's somehow, um, it's like a, a doorway, whatever metaphor. It, it, you know, if you hear, you hear a story, once upon a time there was a princess and a gallant young knight or whatever it was, and all of a sudden you're listening, you're not yourself listening. It's, uh, it's your 3,000 year old self somehow, you know, that's connected to time. It's neolithic self-listening. What's and that? It's your neolithic self-listening and your ordinary self-listening. But the truth is that even these kind of like phantasmagoric lies, if you really slow down enough, they'll always reveal something about the person. But the thing is that we're moving so fast that we believe the cream on top of the cake. Um, I mean, this is, you know, you and I have talked about this, so about my doing a, a podcast in which I would train people. I train people and I've always trained them one-on-one -on -one or in groups because so much depends on the energy. But I've been realizing there's, it's so complicated and interesting, the world of story. And we have to restore in a, a relationship to story within ourselves which does mean slowing down and really learning to listen to what's actually being described. Very often what we respond to or more react to is what we think we heard. Mm -hmm. And we're instantly edited by what we're familiar with. <laughs> so um, some kind of heroic uh, sense of identity. So I think that it, for me it's so delicious to introduce people to um, a storytelling that is so rich. And I love these traditional stories, coming back to where we spoke at the beginning. I love telling personal stories because I think that I understand, this, which I learned from Joseph Campbell and others, that the personal story is mythic. But the mythic story is incredibly personal. So how we like that. Like find that. that is what really excites me in today's world. I, I think that, uh, you know, we'll do maybe a, a more in-depth session where maybe there's some training or something like that uh, because um, this <laughs> is a little bit more, not introductory, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff. This is great. So one of the things that um, I saw one of the authors we've worked with is this guy, Gary Vaynerchuk, and he's very dynamic and successful and all this, but he interviewed someone and he asked them this story, uh, this question, and I thought it was kind of a fun question. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you, if you were a superhero, what would your creation myth or your creation story be? No. What do you mean my creation story? You know, what happened when you were young that was a catalyst or what happened somewhere and all of a sudden you had to be a storyteller or, you know, Superman came down, his, uh, the Incredible Hulk, he was young and he was around the nuclear reactor and his parents this, and all of a sudden he had these superpowers. But some, what happened, you know, how'd you get into this whole being a storyteller? Was it one I thing? I think my superhero story occurred when I was four months old and five years old. 
And I have a memory of being in the, not the crib, but the carriage on my back porch in Brooklyn. And I must have been sleeping in baby mind. And my vivid memory is for moment, and I don't know what caused it, but coming out of that fog and seeing the sky and the stars, and then looking and seeing houses in the dark with lights. So there was no storyline in this, but it's such a vivid picture to me of my interest my entire life in the ordinary and the mythic, in the light and the dark, in resonances between things. And I understood something amazing, but it wasn't uh, meaning in the way that we're familiar with. And the other thing that's interesting is when I was a little girl, I fell asleep once in the middle of the day and I had a dream that was so vivid, it was as if it was not a dream. And in this dream, I saw like a, a crystal palace, like the sort that I would read about in the fairy tales and you know, so on, but more probably being read to me at that age, but it was clever. And um, I saw this procession of men and women on horses riding out from an arched doorway. And they had banners in many colors. And I woke up and I wanted to go to that place. And I remember pushing the heavy front door of our house on 47th Street open and going all by myself, sort of waddling down to 13th Avenue and then getting to the corner in front of the bank because I was allowed to go there and coming back because I knew that I couldn't find it out there. Many, many years later, I was attending a seminar with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. And he was describing what it was like when um, your mind becomes so clear and you have clear seeing that you see the world and everyone in it like a crystal palace. And he made this description of my dream, basically. And I was sitting there and basically I had, what I really wanted was to get out of that room because it was really hot and I'd had enough of this Buddhist thing already. But this, suddenly this statement that went right back to that dream that I had never thought about since I was four or five years old. And I think that um, then, being once with a great, great um, Turkish storyteller in uh, Wales in a festival, we were sitting outside overlooking the Bristol Sea. And he was, didn't have great English, but I asked him how he became an Ashok. By the way, in Turkish, the word for great storyteller is Ashok, which means mother. And uh, he said, it had to do with the dreams I had when I was a child. So I got a translator up on this hill, and I wanted to know if I was a real storyteller. <laughs> you're not. You're, I would say, I I, I officially <laughs> announce you an Asha. If you were wondering whether you are an no, that that is such an amazing um, tradition 
and these people are so well trained. No, I, I, so I would say I have aspirations, but right, I no, cannot. I think, no, no, you don't need any more aspirations. You, you're, <laughs> it's official. You're an Asha. From not another Brooklyn guy, thanks. Not to be confused with Ashuks. You're an Asha. Asha. So, so how about finishing with a short story? Well, since we're into this kind of mystical thing, well, I could tell you one short story that has to do with um, with two little things. One is walking. I was in a um, grocery store on 2nd Avenue, and it was late at night, and I was coming back from somewhere. And I paid for my groceries, and then I went outside, and I turned the corner. And there was a someone walking behind me and I kept hearing him say louder and louder, get out of here. Just leave me alone. Get out of here. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm the only person on the street. I better turn around and take a look because I didn't think I was fast enough to make it down the street and I didn't know what was going on. And I turned around, there was a man behind me and he was yelling at his left hand. Get out of here. Get out of here. Uh, what? Okay. So just this sense of, you know, the inside of a story, who is our enemy? And how do we fall in love with ourselves and the world again? Our friends at Better Listen are offering a special discount to listeners of the show. 20% off all of our Laura Sims titles. Just go to betterlisten.com, search for Laura, and use discount code STORY20 when checking out. Enjoy. So an eighth, you want an eighth century Tibetan story? Sure. Human story? Yeah, I think, yes, and then I think... Uh, be good time to wrap it up after that, I think, just in general. But this is great. I love it. I know you're having exciting revelations. I could give you a private class right now. Okay, so there was a great teacher named Shanki Rashita. Gesundheit. Sorry. Gesundheit to you too. And <laughs> there was a drought. And there was no way that he could help anyone so he decided to just walk from village to village and be there for people and bear witness and wish for them something good and he came to one village and the people there had absolutely nothing but they were so grateful to him that they gathered from each household a little bit of rice And then this was all I had to eat in this entire village. And they cooked the rice and they offered it to him. And he knew he couldn't say no because this was so generous and you, you have to accept such a gift. He was so moved by their kindness and their generosity. And he looked up on the wall and he saw a painting of a white cow. He was so deeply moved that he went to the painting 
and he milked the cow and fed the whole village. <laughs> I like it. That's beautiful. Okay. And there's a siren right on cue there. Right. I'm on Broadway. I like it. I like it. All right. That's a, I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you, Steve. Okay, Laura. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to Street Smart Wisdom, the podcast from Wisdom Feed. You can follow Wisdom Feed on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. If you haven't, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. We appreciate your feedback. Join us next week for another Street Smart conversation. Thank you for listening.